you're listening to KYRS Medical Expo Can at 88.1 and 92.3 FM. And this is Art Hour. I'm your host, Mike Malsom. I'm your other host, Eric Woodard. Okay, Eric. Today we have our as our special guest, Luke Baumgarten. And Luke is a kind of a man for all seasons, uh, co-founder of Terrain, journalist, writer, entrepreneur, started a an uh, organization here called Fellow Coworking here in Spokane, former culture editor at the uh, Inlander, and has a really cool project now um, called Range, which he is using his journalistic skills and writing skills, as well as uh, podcasts and other things that we'll learn more about. But I'm excited to hear about this project. So anyway, welcome, Luke Baumgarten. <laughs> uh, thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, thanks for being here. Yeah, Luke. So maybe we'll just start out. Um, it's hard to know where to start with all of those uh, different things out there, but maybe just give us a little background on, I know you're from the area, kind of where yeah. you grew up and and those and, and that situation, I think is a good story. You know, where you went to school, I know you went to Gonzaga and then just kind of where you ended up where you're at now and we'll go from there. Yeah, I, I grew up in uh, out in Chatteroy, kind of way, way out north of Mead, um, about 20 miles north of the Y. And um, but then my grandma lived kind of by Linwood Elementary. And so I kind of uh, not going too deep into the bio, I kind of like spent my whole life in a place that was sort of rural. I, I love the outdoors and stuff, but I, you know, I was kind of an indoor kid. I'm kind of a video game kid and kind of an art kid. And I always have been a writer. Uh, and I was a writer like I, when my uh, when my friends would want to go like play army men or something, I would like write. I wrote a report on George Washington for my mom when I was like in first grade or something during summer. And I don't, it was the weirdest thing. Uh, but that's like a really salient early memory of mine. And so like I've always just kind of, I think, like naturally been like a life of the mind kind of person. And but, you know, like out in Chatteroy, I couldn't even we we got. We got like the networks, but we couldn't get cable. My parents couldn't afford satellite. My buddy Ben, who was like probably an even bigger like film nerd than I am, uh, and I got into journalism because I wanted to be Roger Ebert. But like he lived up on Jackson Road, on uh, kind of on like the foothills of Mount Kit Carson. He only got ABC, so like we would go over to his house. Like when we wanted to watch TV, we would come to my house and have to watch the networks. But he had the better video game system. So I would like it was and it was like we're talking when I'm I'm not talking about like walking down the street, I'm talking about like driving 15 miles between people's houses. And and then but then my grandma had like everything. And my uncle was still at home. He was kind of like an older brother to me. And so like I kind of it was like, you know, my parents are really wonderful people, but kind of like a conservative evangelical upbringing. So I was like encouraged to listen to like Christian rock <laughs> at home. But then my uncle would like introduce me to like NWA and Two Live Crew and Judas Priest and Def Leppard. And my grandma is like the most, was like the most loving, but also foul mouthed person you would ever meet, my mom's mom. And so I just, I got this incredible like collision of worlds growing up. Um, and I think it was like, I, and I would just find every, chance I could to like go hang out at grandma's house, go hang out at grandma's house. I, I feel like I, I would try to spend as much of my summer as I could over at grandma's house for her and for my family, but like also because like MTV and like, so I think that was, it took me a really long time, you know, high school 
and then went to college at Gonzaga. And I was actually a math major for two years at Gonzaga. And it was always like a process. I think growing up, you know, my parents didn't go to college. I was a first generation college kid. Uh, and I had teachers in high school try to get me to take like the one creative writing class that our, our school would offer like every year. Like there was only one and I never did it. And, and even through a couple years of college, I never even really, you know, like college was a thing that you went to, to like get a good job or, you know, find a business. Like my, I think my parents hoped that I would be an engineer or a doctor or something. And, and so when I went into computer science, they didn't really understand, you know, like they weren't big in computers in the late nineties because very few people were, but they were like, Oh, I, at least I know that this is like a good career path for my kid. And fast forward two years and I just happened to take a, uh, I take an, a, an object oriented programming class who also, from a guy who also has a dual doctorate in linguistics. And I pulled a solid C in that class. And the only time I could like even get myself to pay attention was when he was talking about philosophy of language. And, and then I started like these, just like these wheels. And it feels like they've been talking about it and even looking back on it. I feel like it's like the clockwork of my brain was like rusted and it like just started slowly sort of turning. And it's like, Oh, what the, th- the stuff I really give a shit about is art and, 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 you know, argument and rhetoric, but also like, you know, um, story and, and craft. And so I kind of like, my parents are the most supportive people in the world, but like, I was like, I think I want to be an English and philosophy major guys. <laughs> and they were like, okay. Oh, okay. And my mom kind of cried a little bit. And I, I've told, I'm actually, I'm on a committee at, for the Dean of the school of arts and sciences at Gonzaga. And I told this story to a bunch of people that I think are used to like going and getting a Jesuit education. It's, you know, it's, it's this committee is like, I'm one of the younger people on it, but it's all people that like kind of grew up with the Jesuit tradition of, you know, discernment and, and just like a deep, you know, education in the humanities. And they think it's just like the funniest story. And it's funny to me now too, but it was like, I, you know, like my parents, like I was not raised in that sort of a, and, the, and neither were they. And so they took a tremendous journey with me to like, let me be a weirdo and like, let me go like explore my creative side. And that's kind of where it all went from there. And so like after college, I was like, I'm either going to go to grad school or I want to be a writer. And so I started trying to freelance uh, I moved to Seattle just to work a startup job for like a year, but I was like always trying to freelance and taking the GREs and trying to go to grad school. And the writing thing kind of got traction before I found a, a school that I wanted to go to. And then I, you know, eventually got a job at the Inlander and kind of the rest is history from there. But um, I don't know, that was kind of a long lead up to it, but I don't know if you want to jump in with another question, but. Well, I think that's, uh, I didn't realize that you went to Gonzaga and started out as a math major, yeah. which kind of kind of surprised me a little bit. So, but, and my first question I was going to ask, what was really kind of the turning point, you know, going from math clear to into this philosophical uh, journey, but you kind of hit on that. Did did your job at the Inlander as you started there uh, as a cultural uh, editor. And I remember way back, just kind of reading your articles, you covering the, the music scene and all of that stuff. I mean, was that really kind of really filling your soul more so once you started that job where you could write, but also be involved in this, that kind of environment? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, so the, the real thing that did it, that started the, the journey from math to, it started with philosophy before English, uh, was 
I took a symbolic logic class, which is like a philosophy one-on-one class. That's basically math with words, if that makes sense. And so when I realized, and I talked to my advisor about this after the fact, my, the guy that became my philosophy advisor was the guy that taught me creative uh, or uh, critical thinking. I was like, Oh my God, I like, I like, there's a, there is a structure. Like there's, there's like, I feel like I've got a pretty decent, um, mix of right brain and left brain, you know, like I, I, I am a pretty good logical thinker, but then I just have like a, well, I, I ended up getting diagnosed with ADD in my thirties. So I have like this wildly creative side too, but I like, I like harnessing creativity with structure. <laughs> and so when I, and so like math, the structure of math always really, really calmed me and like soothed me. And then when I realized that you could basically do math with words, like logic is math with words, basically, I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> this is cool. Am I allowed to swear on KYRS? Uh, I'll bleep it all oh, okay. out. All right, yeah. sorry. In fact, right. I'm writing down. You cut. You set it at five sixteen, and I'll get it in the edit. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, um, so I was like, oh wow, this is. I'll, 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 I know how hard it is to edit these things, so I'm going to try to. I'll, I'll keep my profile. Oh no, not more. at all. I'm already editing it. I already uh, have to put in commercials and all that stuff. All right. Go to town. I'm just. I'll write them all down. Maybe you'll set a record for our show. Oh, maybe I will. So, and that was, that was just like a revelation to me. And so I, you know, I, I feel like my education um, has, was just like a, um, a, a, a relatively quick and, and powerful and, and it can kind of continue to say, like just taking like the sort of shackles off my mind a step at a time being like, Oh, you can do this or this or this or this. And, and at that point, I think that's when I, I think that started in college and then it really kind of snowballed. And so just even giving myself permit, I, you know, I, I started working at the under like 24, but I didn't dare call myself a writer. I think until I was like 27 or 28, um, just cause it didn't seem real. Um, it kind of seemed like a dream in some ways. And then, and then eventually though, and this is kind of why when people started, you know, when, when Ginger and Mariah and Patrick and Sarah and all of us got together to start talking about, uh, terrain, it was like, I love writing about our city and I love writing about art and, but I also wanted to, to impact it in some way and not that writing doesn't. Right. But it's like, I, I did feel like there was like, I could, I could also be in not just documenting the scene, but I could be acting in it in a way that could be powerful. And so, you know, that was another, like taking the shackles off a little bit. Cause I think this is changing and I'm definitely trying to do something different than traditional journalism with range, but like there's an idea in, in traditional journalism that you want to, you're supposed to be a, a sort of a dispassionate or objective observer. Um, and it's a little different with arts writing. Cause like you, you only want to write about the good stuff and not the bad. And I, and I've always, like I said, I wanted to be Roger Ebert. So I always had like a critical eye for like quality and stuff and aesthetics, but you know, you, you kind of always feel like in order to be a, a journalist, you kind of have to be a little bit separate from, from the scene. You're, 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 you know, you're like an observer. Right. Um, and that was obviously incredibly fulfilling in some ways, but I also wanted a little bit more. So when, and, and I was also just seriously bumming me out that at that point in Spokane, like I'm sure you both remember this, like anytime a halfway decent band would come up, they would move to Seattle because I didn't think there was a scene here. And so that was like the, the, the first goal that train tried to tried to solve for was like people who were like, there's no community in Spokane. And you hear that a couple dozen times and you're like, well, how many people does it take to make a community? 
You know, like is, is 30 people enough to make a community? Cause I've heard 30 people complaining about how we don't have a scene here. So is 30 people enough to make a scene? I th- it, maybe it is. I don't know. So that was kind of the genesis of terrain. Um, and then it kind of, that all steamrolled from there. Um, now I'm not sure about the chronology. Were you creating terrain while you were still at the Inlander? Uh, yeah. So I was at the Inlander, I think started in 04. We started terrain in 08 and then I left the Inlander in 2012, late 2012. So I was doing terrain and the Inlander both for about four years, four or five years. Okay. And then why did you decide to leave the Inlander? Um, we bought a house and I couldn't, and then I, and then I just went back down to being a, a regular staff writer. And so I took a pay cut and I couldn't pay my bills anymore. <laughs> Long story <Yeah>. short. <laughs> um, yeah, there's a, there's a lot around that, but it's like, you know, the journalism's kind of in crisis and it has been for a while. It doesn't mean that there aren't models that don't work or that, that could work and, and certainly pay people a living wage, but the print journalism around here is tough, you know, and if you, it's, it's a young person's game for a number of reasons. Cause it's just a lot of work. It's an insane amount of work. It's actually, it's like a pathologically too much so, amount of work. Generally speaking, most of the writers I know don't have particularly healthy like lives, you know, there's not a lot of work life balance there. Um, but also, you know, the, the market around here only, at least right now, only, you know, holds a certain level. So you can only do it for so long if you decide you want to do things like, you know, have a house. Mm-hmm. So, so you mentioned that, that you um, kind of, you um, wanted to create this arts organization so you could do something that instead of just write about it. But yeah. one of the questions that I wanted to ask you was, I mean, as a journalist, you do feel like you're doing some good. Were there some pieces that you look back on now and you think, you know, that had an impact or I'm really proud of that one. Is there something that you look back on at the end and say, that's a big one for me? Oh man, I have so many of them. Then it's, it, so I, I don't want to in any way, like I was, I spent, I got to spend almost a decade thinking about nothing but the craft of writing and, and in a way that supported my community too. So it wasn't like, you know, uh, a totally insular thing. It was outward looking. It was trying to sort of like tell stories about actual people in the most sort of artistic. And in, in so far as it was an alt weekly, I had a lot more freedom than I would have had at a daily paper. You know, it's like more like magazine writing, which is the kind of the most creative periodical nonfiction writing there is. And so, yeah, there's like, there's countless stories, but one that I remember, it's like one of my favorites. And I actually got a, a pretty big award for this was, um, and actually it was because it taught me to actually listen to my editor because I got sent <laughs> to cover just like the, 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 uh, like basically like the background music at Mizuna, you know, like, you know, they're just like the guitar that plays while people are eating their, you know, sea bass or whatever on the patio in summer. And it was beautiful, but I was like, this is not, this is not an, this is not about art. This is about ambiance and entertainment or what, or whatever. It's like, it's a business story or kind of like a whatever. And it turned out to be Abe Kenny. Do you guys know Abe Kenny? Yeah, he's a former student of mine. Yeah, so Abe was does this flamenco guitar stuff, and he's an incredibly talented guitarist. And I knew him a little bit, but he was... I, I'm not the biggest metal guy, but he's also in the metal scene. And so I'm sitting there, and it's basically just kind of be a scene story. And, you know, the Inlander is almost 20 years old at this point. And so 
they want to like start checking back in on businesses that have been around like restaurants and stuff that have been around for a while. Like they were getting feedback that it's like, you know, you, you guys only ever write about the new restaurants. So why don't you go write about, you know, why don't you come back to these older restaurants? And so, uh, Ted sent me to Mizuna and, and again, yeah, I was like a little snotty about it, but then I'm sitting down and the meal's really good. And then, but then Abe's doing some weird stuff that doesn't sound like flamenco to me on his acoustic guitar. And and I'm like, oh, this sounds kind of like metal. This guy is just like <laughs> on the patio at Mizuna, throwing down some metal. And then like, there's, there's like a, you know, an, like an older couple, but also kind of maybe like on a first date, you know, kind of like a, a late, you know, a, 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 a late life romance. And he plays this song that's just really dark and really beautiful. And I don't recognize it as like any metal that I know. It turned out to be an original composition of his. And at the end of it, this guy who's like in a sweater vest, you know, and like, <laughs> like a button up with this lady who's like got her hair up nice. It's like a nice, it's a night out on the town from, he leans over to her and I just happen to be like right behind them. He's like, that's one of the metal songs I was telling you about. <laughs> so there was this like moment in this brief moment in time that I feel so fortunate to have been there for to capture that like there was some like low key acoustic metal happening at Mizuna, you know, on on Friday nights, you know. That's that's that still gives me chills talking telling that story. I got goosebumps thinking about it. That was such a powerful experience for me. Sure. You're listening to KYRS Medical Lake Spokane 88.1 and 92.3 FM. Art Hour receives support from South Perry Pizza, featuring rotating local artists and serving hand-tossed artisan pizza, beer, and wine at 1011 South Perry Street and online at southperrypizzaspokane.com. invited to cruise Americana Avenue with me, Jim Tate, in your car or at the office, each Tuesday from 2 to 4 p.m. You'll hear the best in progressive American roots music in a multitude of styles. It's Americana Avenue on your radio station, KYRS. Art Hour relies on support from listeners like you. Just $3 a month helps keep KYRS going strong, and you can help by texting Give KYRS to 44321. That's all one word Give KYRS to 44321. Art Hour receives support from Saga, the Spokane Arts Grant Award. Information online at spokanearts.org. So 2004 to 2012, you were at the Inlander. Did yeah. I get that right? So in that uh, eight years of time, what, what, how would you describe the culture of Spokane from, from your perspective in those eight years? I think about it a lot in terms of like waves, like thinking about like an oscilloscope or like a sine wave or a, or a music, like a, you know, like the, or like a, a music wave, like for the first, oh God, almost until, well, until we started terrain, but then even a couple of years after, like it was, 
businesses would open, there'd be a little bit of buzz and then they would shutter. And specifically thinking about music venues like the B-side and then like everything that the B-side became for years and years and years and years after that. And it's empty again. Now the garage land is closed. Like it was like that. It was like this, like just this wave of a, a brief high and then a protracted low and a brief high and a protracted low. And and that was, you know, the the Empyrean stuck around for close to a decade, but always struggled, never thrived really for, and not for lack of trying, not for lack of effort, not for lack of doing everything it possibly could. Um, you know, and then the Bartlett later on, like the Bartlett was, I think, more successful in some, in, in like maybe just in a pure like monetary. So I'm not, I'm not making any sort of artistic judgments here. I'm just talking about in, in, in terms of business's ability to survive. I think at some point there was a switch. And I think, I think terrain both helped catalyze it, but then also definitely rode the wave of it. Cause I don't want to like, we, we worked our asses off, but write that one down, Eric. Sorry. Um, we worked really hard, <laughs> uh, but we also, but I also think we caught a wave. Like, I think we, we, we had an idea about what we wanted Spokane to become or how we might be able to help Spokane become a little bit different. At about the exact same time, a lot of people were like, I want more for my city than this. I want to, you know, support my city in a deeper way. I want, I want to, you know, when, when cool things come about, I want to like really dig in, in a way that I don't think was there in the, in the mid aughts and the late aughts. Um, and that's, and then now you see now like the little, the undulations have become kind of more like a little, a slope upward and it's not perfect, right? Cause things still closed. The Bartlett, the Bartlett's still closed. But um, it does feel like it's like more like this. Two steps and forward, one step back. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. We're still making, and maybe it's even three steps forward and one step back now. Mm-hmm. And I think in the and it's and it's different from industry to industry. I feel like the food scene is bonkers. It's that really like with starting with Sante, that took off and never looked back. And now we've got Ethan Stoll, who's like one of the gods of Seattle cuisine, is probably going to open up two or three restaurants in Spokane in the next few years. Like that's unheard of. And, and, you know, the music scenes, I think a little bit tougher, but the lucky you has certainly made a go of it and, and other places have as well. And we've always had a pretty robust film scene, like the Garland theater is amazing. And the, I think the magic lantern kind of struggles in some ways, but it's, it's stable, it's there and it's, it's not in any danger of going anywhere. So, um, yeah, it's, I think that, that was the change. I think it was like, and I don't know if that's like millennials, it's probably millennials because I'm the oldest possible millennial. I think it's like that generation of kids. And I, and I, um, this is a, th- a hypothesis of mine and I'm not a economist or a social scientist. So I don't know if it's true. It might be complete, you know, BS, but I think the recession of 2008 forced people to be like, Oh, I don't know if I can afford to move to Seattle. I don't know if I can afford to move to San Francisco or Portland or New York and just, you know, um, starve in a, in a apartment with like six other people. So maybe I'm going to stick around Spokane and see what I can do. And it just, and all, and all it took was like a moment for enough people to buy into that. And then again, like this, this desire for more to sort of create a reinforcement or like a, like a beneficial cycle to like now, you know, <laughs> Uh, so at fellow, we got, we get a lot of, you know, people who work remotely, who've moved to Spokane from other cities, but still have their job in those other cities. But this kid, a couple of years ago had just graduated from Gonzaga 
And so all my friends, when I graduated from Gonzaga, all my friends moved away. Like didn't even like basically like they didn't even like bother taking off their graduation gowns. They just got in their cars and drove. And I did too for a year. Um, this kid, this kid was just like, you know, he's young, like just like he's 21, but he looks younger and he starts hanging out at fellow. And I just asked him one day, I'm like, what's your deal, man? Like, <laughs> he's like, yeah, I just got a job. He's like, I got a, I got a undergrad in business, but I really want to do nonprofit work and I want to start a nonprofit. I'm going to do it in Spokane. And I'm, but he's from Berkeley. And I was like, why did, why wouldn't you go back to Berkeley and start it? He's like, why would I go back to Berkeley and start it? Like, why wouldn't I do it in Spokane? So I think more and more that's, that's the thing. Like, that's what's, um, that was, that was like the thing. And it, it took five years maybe. And for that switch to flip and now it's, and now we're at a point where people want to move here so bad. It's actually, I'm, I'm concerned about it. And actually, I think we had a conversation, Mike, maybe in like 2017 or something. I feel like you were there with Ginger and I it, in, in, I'm trying to remember if it was the cracker building or the, um, the Holly Mason before, or not the Holly Mason, uh, the Jensen Bird before one of the, our yearly events that we were worried about housing for artists in 2017 or 2016. Like we were hearing from our friends that like they had in some cases moved to Spokane from Seattle because they got priced out of Seattle and they were like, wow, now I'm kind of feeling worried about getting priced out of Spokane too. And I think artists are both the the cultural vanguard for the way the, and the, the whole reason cities become cool in the first place. They're also the canary in the coal mine for when those places become unlivable for the exact same groups that made these places desirable in the first place. And so it's been wild having like a spidey sense five years ago that things are going to go exactly the way they've gone and seeing like our leaders, our, you know, city planners, our mayors and city council people and everybody else, like, and the developers that built, you know, the people that build housing in the city didn't see it, but it was manifestly evident in the art scene, you know, a long time ago. Yeah. I think about the starting of terrain and, and that's an interesting concept about the, the recession and with the millennials, but I think another thing is, is I do believe Terrain was a catalyst in, if for anything else, for me, it uncovered um, the the hunger that Spokane had for the arts. Yeah. I mean, those Terrain shows each year, they got bigger and bigger, and I'm kind of just going, wow. I mean, so many people were coming out for that. And the combination of the, the, the musicians, the visual artists, the poetry, uh, it, it just showed to me that there really was a hunger and maybe we just needed the catalyst to actually like push the boulder over enough to, so that gathered some momentum, which yeah. I think it continued to have momentum. Um, it continues to have momentum, I, I think, even with the pandemic. Absolutely. Um, I'm very hopeful, but but like what you just said about the artists coming over, a lot of creatives, and I think I look at Boise the same way. We have such a shortage of now housing, where the you know the demand far out exceeds, exceeds the supply. It's going to be cost prohibitive for them <laughs> to move over, and that is that is a legitimate uh, fear or concern. And, and based on that, oh, go ahead, you go, Mike. Yeah. 
Well, I was just going to say, based on that, Luke, I mean, what what are some of the solutions? Because I know in range you've been talking about, you. Re- it's really um, activist journalism. The idea is trying to think about what we can do. Yeah. Um, what what are some things that, that Spokane either is doing or could be doing to um, help alleviate that problem? Well, if you want to go, I would listen to the Terry Anderson episodes of range, uh, which are at rangemedia.co. But um, I, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't think anybody actually knows the answer to that. Although, you know, I think there's kind of like two tranches, like two sort of classifications of things that need to happen and whether or not there's any either political will or will from the developer community, like I'm more on like the capital, the business owner side of things, like to actually do these things remains to be seen. But it's like, we have to have... I think reforms that make it more equitable for renters to not get kicked out of their houses. Cause we're, we're in a housing market that's so hot right now that and I was actually, you know, my parents clawed their way into the middle class. And one of the ways they did that was with a couple small rental properties. And so like they're, they're technically landlords now. And, and the big, the really big landlords use landlords like my mom and dad as like the, the, the sob story to really cover over some pretty toxic and awful behaviors of like, you know, once a, once a rental market gets a little bit hot, you know, you, you want to buy up, you know, a kind of a mid a rundown mid century, mid South Hill or in Brown's edition or something like a, like an apartment complex that has 20 or 30 units. That's only ever rented for like, you know, 900 bucks a month for a couple bedrooms and slap a coat of paint on it. And all of a sudden it's worth $2,500 a month. Right. Like, so stopping that sort of stuff where it's like, if you just cause evictions, which just passed at the state, that's actually good. That's the state level thing that the city council wasn't able to get done here, but the state just passed it. So that's good. Um, and others, things like that. But then I also think we have to think like my, this is me editorializing here. My personal feeling is like the, the private aspect of the market, the private development market, the people trying to turn a profit off of building housing for people is never really going to touch the bottom of the market. It's just never going to reach them. Like you're never, nobody is going to intentionally buy or no, nobody's going to intentionally build lower like housing for poor people. It just doesn't happen. The, the sort of the prevailing wisdom is that people buy like build the the most expensive nicest housing they can possibly buy and then rich people buy those and then their old houses go to middle class people and then middle class people move out of their houses and then basically the market gets better from the top down it's basically it's like literally the housing version of trickle down economics and that is true when there's an equilibrium of people move or it can be true when there's like an equilibrium of people moving in to town where it's like basically the population stable, but we've had a thousand people moving to Spokane County from out of state. This is, these are statistics from the department of licensing for 25 months. That means we have 25,000 new people in the County in the last 25 months uh, from out of state. So that's not, that's not counting Seattle folks. That's not counting people from Vancouver or, you know, wherever else. Um, is that a net thousand? Or is that just the people who no, are that's, moving in? That's gross. I don't know, but okay. that's 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 based on people literally having like a Texas driver's license and being like, I need a Washington right. driver's license now. So that's adults, though. It's not kids. Um, so yeah, it's it's not net, but it's still it's a lot, man. That's and so a lot. and so, how if 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 the 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 dynamics of the housing market that everybody agrees is true, even the you know the home builders association, you know. 
they say it's like we're building for the the middle and the top of the market, the high end part of the market, and it trickles down. But if there's a thousand people a month moving to town looking for places to live, they're going to take the middle part of that market, and eventually they're going to start putting downward pressure on the on those on that workforce housing to flip it into condos or flip it into you know higher end apartments for people. And that's happening right now. There's I heard a story. This might be. I think this person works at the city and they're pretty high up. They just got recruited from somewhere out of state. They're making, you know, close to six figures in this, in a, like a relatively high level bureaucratic job at the city. They are living in their old city and, and working remotely in Spokane just because they can't find housing. So if a person who's making 90 grand a year can't find housing in Spokane, we really need to think hard about how people who are making 25, I think the median in household income in Spokane is like 40 grand. So if like a couple is a median household income of like 40 or 50 grand, how are those people going to ever be able to find housing if they lose it? Yeah. Well, th- this is a good segue because it's, you mentioned earlier that you had talked to Terry Anderson. Was that the name? Yeah. Yeah. She's the, she's the local, the Spokane director of the Washington Tenants Union. Okay. But you mentioned you had talked to her on your show. And then I want to talk about range, kind of what it is, um, what, how you envision it working going forward, how you decided to start it. Because it's kind of, you know, looking at your site, there's some articles that you've written. There's some longer podcasts or some shorter podcasts. So tell us about how range got started, what you're doing with it, what, what kind of the idea behind it is. I uh, I didn't get into podcasts until I was a late bloomer on podcasts. I got in around the 2016 election and partially just kind of like, because I have super bad ADD, I actually don't read that much. Even though I'm a writer, I, like, I have a hard time like reading uh, like long things. And so I started even journalism. So I started basically listening to podcasts to understand what was happening from various perspectives. I'm, I'm, I'm on the left. I'm like, I probably classify myself as like a democratic socialist. So I was trying to like understand apart from even like, you know, NBC nightly news or like MSNBC and certainly Fox, like how are people that think about this stuff all the time thinking about what's happening in our country right now? And the more I got to thinking about that, I was like, there needs to be something like this in Spokane. Maybe that could be something I do. And I'd, I'd been wanting, I, I really, when I left the Inlander, I kind of left a piece of myself there. And so it was partially just wanting to get back into that. Um, and I want to find a way to have an art, to, art, an art component in range, but I do like I've, I think people know me as kind of an art guy. And this is very, very much like a, public policy, politics, philosophy, podcast. And I think it's like kind of part and parcel of the two. It's like I kind of jumped into terrain because I wanted to act like to try to help solve a problem that I saw in my community as a journalist. And then like I was just talking about, like you identify problems as an arts organizer and then, you know, terrain's not a housing nonprofit, you know what I mean? Although we did talk about, it, we we're like, should we add housing justice to a plank of what we do at Terrain? Like, could we be this place that throws art parties and like does housing justice? Like, would that even make sense? Because it was such a clear concern. And so, so I kind of started it in April, right as COVID broke. So that was like it. I was like, kind of found myself with COVID lockdown, not having, didn't have a ton to do. And I was like, well, I'm either 
either, I either do it now or I'm probably never going to do it. So I just started with a couple episodes that were pretty kind of more like it was just me talking into a microphone for like <laughs> 30 minutes to an hour, which I, I'm anybody who actually listened to those episodes, like I, they're not bad, but it's like how it's, it was, you know, it was just me, man. Um, so good on you for, for soldiering through, but like, um, it was, it was more kind of philosophical about, okay, how did we get here and where do we go from here, et cetera. And then, uh, the murder of George Floyd happened and the city, our city erupted in ways that I hadn't really seen it erupt in, in really sort of powerfully transformative ways. And, you know, I've always sort of, you know, as, as I've seen Spokane grow, I've seen it take on aspects of things I'd seen in other cities, right? Like I was, I was a little young for like the WTO protests in Seattle in the nineties, but I knew about it. I was aware of it. I knew that like Seattle was an activist city and Portland was an activist city. And I'd seen that in other places. I'd obviously lived through like Rodney King and stuff like that. So I knew that ha- that stuff happened in LA. Um, and I'd been to, you know, I'd been to the, the MLK day March, like almost every year that ginger and I were together. So that's, you know, that had been 12 years and that was, that felt good. It was like solidarity and, you know, um, and a real sense of community and love and a desire, you know, to just sort of uphold the principles that the Dr. King uh, stood for. And then George Floyd happened and there were twice as many people as ever showed up, at least when I was paying attention to the, to the MLK day rallies demanding better and demanding more for communities of color, but also just poor folks. Like one of the, one of the fascinating things about the, the policing dynamic in Spokane is that, yeah, like there's, there's the, the racial disproportionality in policing that you see in uh, other cities is absolutely present in Spokane, but because we have so many more white people, it's also, you see like, you know, the same things that entrap, you know, people of color in cycles of basically being stuck in jail for petty tickets or minor theft, or just because they can't pay bail happens to like hundreds and hundreds of poor white people in Spokane too. And so you're sitting, we're sitting there with a jail that's like got a thousand people on any given day and 70% of them haven't even been convicted of anything yet. They're just sitting there, you know, unable to make bail. Like that's it. Or they, you know, haven't been granted bail. So it's like, so like the kid that grew up conservative or with conservative parents is like, is that a good use of money? <laughs> like there's, there's always that. And then it's like, and it's also, is it just, and is it, you know, is it ethical and is it morally right to, you know, you, you stole a loaf of bread or something cause you needed to feed your family and all of a sudden, and you know, and now, now, and now you've lost your job cause you got caught. Like, is that not, is it like retribution, you know, for people's, um, like do people deserve, is it, is, is the criminal legal system about revenge or is it about rehabilitation? It's, it's that, but it's also like, is that the best way to have a functioning society? Like, should we be punishing that person in that way or should we find a different way? And and obviously, you know, like personal use drug offenses are the biggest example of that. So I was like, okay, now what I'm going to do with this range thing. And you could tell I already I've, this is just stuff that I've like sponged up over the years anyway. So I, I had a decent base of knowledge on the stuff. And I was like, but everything I thought I knew, there was always somebody that knew 10 times more than me. So I just started interviewing people, you know, activists at the, um, at the Floyd protests, and then just other people, like people working on systemic level stuff, people working on housing, people working on, on bail reform, like the bail project in Spokane. Spokane's one of the bail projects is huge na- nationwide 
organization that just helps people make bail if they can't make it, which, you know, um, like 90% of uh, crimes just get pled out. And when, when people take, when people don't plea bargain and they take it to court, like 60% of those cases just get dropped because the prosecutors either don't have time or they just don't want to, it's, it's not worth their time to do it. And so the bail project is basically like their, their whole mission is like, we're just going to help people get bail so they can fight their case. And the, the system's probably just going to give up on them anyways, you know? And that's, it's proof that like we're, it's a cycle of money more than anything. And, and what are we doing to our society when we do that? So we like talking to those folks and like hearing it from their, from their side. Sorry, there's like a motorcycle going by right now. Um, and and then also hearing that the people that were working in this work, working at the, our local bail project, also had in, just brutal stories of trauma themselves and just sort of like understanding through these conversations how much of this stuff. And then I think about how many conversations I've had with artists that are, have, you know, their work is informed by trauma and just sort of understanding how, you know, in some ways this work feels like a massive departure from terrain and from treatment by the little creative firm that I work with and, and the co-working space and then the, you know, the, my work at the Inlander, but it's all really, really connected. And so far as it's all part of like the fabric of society and what we sort of, what we do to each other, what we do for each other, and then how we try to cope with it afterwards. What has been the response from, um, I mean, have you gotten responses from, say, city leaders or uh, has, has it entered into the fabric of the discussion or do you still feel like you're kind of knocking on that door? I think it has, it, it definitely has entered into the, dis- the fabric of the discussion. And I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Like, so I've been thinking about this a lot. Like what, what kind of journalism even is this? Like I got in, so after I kind of went all in on it, um, and a, a friend of mine who used to work at the spokesman review and now works for a national journalism nonprofit, um, got me to apply for this, um, Google, like a, basically like a Google accelerator project for local journalism. And I got in, which I was like incredibly, uh, thankful for. I was like working with people in Toronto. It was, so it was like all of North America. So there are people from Puerto Rico and people from, um, like Canada and then all over the U S and, it, it allowed me to sort of like check back in on like journalism as an industry and learn about all these new emerging models. Like you were talking about Eric, like activist journalism and, and stuff like that. But also like there are these models you know, of journal that don't feel like journalism when they first get mentioned, like in, in Detroit, there's this place called outlier media. You know, we all know like what's been going on with Detroit. And like one of the things that happens when, you know, a city, like it's so deindustrialized is like people would, sign leases on houses and then the house would either get foreclosed on or sold and they would almost immediately get evicted by the new landlord or the house would just like literally get torn down. Hmm. And so outlier media was created to like, literally it was, it's, they would, you would just text them like a, like literally just like an SMS, like send them a text message asking about an address that you were thinking about moving into. And they would tell you if there were liens, if it was in foreclosure Hmm. And it's like, the first, when I heard about that, I'm like, is that even, is that journalism? And I'm like, in some ways, that's actually kind of the most powerful and and individually meaningful kind of journalism, just like helping people get the, if if journalism is just like helping people get the information they need to be, you know, to survive, but then also to be more informed citizens, like that's kind of the most direct form of journalism there 
there can be. And so, and that got me kind of thinking about the, the news structure, right? Like I, one of the reasons I started listening to like podcasts as opposed to like network television was like, I just had a feeling that like, you know, Bob Woodward can only be so mean. Well, until, until Trump, but like Bob Woodward can only be so mean to a president because the president could just stop taking his calls. Right. Like that's, it's called access journalism. It's like when you're, when you're dealing with power, if you want to continue to have access to that power, you can only be so, you know, you can only hit that power so hard before they just stop returning your phone calls and you have to find another way to do it. And so the vast majority of corporate media is very deferential to power. And like, you know, I didn't study journalism, but like, as I was all my journalism buddies, like, and all of the people that I know that do journalism are like, we're supposed to be adversarial to power. The whole point of journalism is to be adversarial to power. So like, what can we do? But then, and then again, that got me thinking about the structure of like, you think about the newspaper, like you've got the city section, you've got the business section, you've got the, you know, the government section or whatever. I was like, what if you made a paper that instead of being about like, primarily about city hall. It was about the, the activists trying to make change in city hall, right? If you change your, your aperture, your focus, and what if instead of having a business, you know, be the B one, the business section of the, I don't even know if the spokesman has a business section anymore, but they used to like, the, what if the business section was the worker section? What if the business section was talking about like unions and efforts to make, you know, like what Elon Musk quintupled his, personal wealth during COVID while millions and millions of people, you know, like unemployment reached heights we hadn't seen since like the eighties, if not the great depression. And so it's like, how can we, can I create a, a kind of journalism? I'm not creating it, but I'm in, in, in Spokane. Can I do the kind of journalism that like purposefully centers the people who are most affected by power and the, the efforts to try to like, get justice for them as opposed to asking tough questions, you know, asking questions about, well, what are we going to do about the homelessness pop situation to the mayor? It's like, why don't we go talk to the people who are directly helping the homeless folks and maybe the homeless folks themselves and what asking them what they need. Right. Like that seems like a much, and then, then rather than having like a top down view on the problem, you might have a bottom up view of the solution which seems a lot more correct to me. So Luke, have you had any um, through range and some of your commentary around various issues, um, gotten some action from other folks in Spokane that have actually, um, where your commentary has made an impact in some small way towards the solutions that you just talked about? I, I don't think anything I've done by myself has been, uh, has done that, but I do think a couple times. So one of the things, so one of the little, like if I've innovated anything yet, I think the one thing that I've done is like, I try to put action items at the bottom of all my posts where it's like, okay, if this, this thing that we just talked about either on the podcast or in the, in the newspaper, if it pissed you off, um, what, like, here, here are two or three steps you can take to do it. So when the, the first police contract that everybody seemed to think was um, really not good enough as, as regards police oversight and, you know, the city of Spokane passed the police ombudsman ordinance into the city charter, which required a 60% of super majority. We got 70% like 10 years ago and it never got implemented properly because 
the other thing you have to do then is like bargain with, you know, the, the contract, it, it gets written into the contract with the cops and they, they never, uh, you know, th- there were just things that they wouldn't agree to. Right. So you can only, you know, it's like you've amended the constitution, but now you actually have to write the laws that, you know, that whatever. And so I did a lot of writing about that and then just put these action items. Like if, if this doesn't seem right to you and if you want the city council to, um, to, to basically veto it, to say, no, we're not going to, we're not going to ratify this constitution, do better. Uh, you know, email, you know, email Brian, email all these, you know, uh, basically email, find, figure out where your district is. And it's actually, it's, this is the other thing. It's like, you're kind of helping people navigate. Sorry, I'm kind of jumping all over the place because it's complicated stuff. It's like, do you even know who, which city council person directly represents you? Right. For me, it's Betsy and Lori Kinnear and Brian, but it took me a second. That's why my brain broke for a second. I was like trying to remember who represented me. And it's like, and then when you're dealing with state legislators, which where there's like 50 of them in the Senate and even more in the House, a hundred in the House, it's like, I don't even know. Is it, it's, you know, it's Marcus and Andy, but would I know that if I didn't do this work? And so it was like, partially it's like, here's a three-step process. Figure out who, (laughs) figure out who your, uh, figure out who represents you in city council and write them a letter. Hmm. And and again, it's like, I think there were a lot of people pushing that exact same button, but I pushed it as hard as I possibly could. And after the fact, like I heard sort of back channel that that, that contract was probably going to pass four three and it ended up getting struck down seven zero. And, um, because there was a tidal wave and then, uh, from Brian, he said like, that's the most that's the most letters I've ever gotten on a piece of, um, on a piece of, on anything, anything in my time at city hall, like by far, he got like, he got like 3000 emails from people. So, but, but again, it's like, I think the, I understand the question, but the more that I think about this stuff, it's also, it's like, it's not going to be any one thing. Like whatever I'm doing at range is only going to be a piece of the puzzle. And so like, I actually kind of don't want to pat myself on the back for whatever role I had in that because it's only one piece. And, and it was insofar as like, I was learning about this stuff from people who've been doing this a lot longer than I have and who have been actively working on it as opposed to just reporting on it. Like they're the people that deserve the credit if anything. And the people that took the time, like this is, this is the, I think civic action is gonna, is, has to be a mass movement. And so it took kind of like the dynamics that sort of, turned Spokane into a cool place. It took a little bit of terrain. It took a little bit of people deciding they wanted to live in a cooler town and supporting stuff. Like it takes all of us sort of doing our part to, to really move the ball forward. And so my, my part in that is just trying to help close that gap between the people who spend their whole lives working on making the world better for people and the rest of, you know, our community. Well, you mentioned a couple of times that you're only one man and I get that, but it makes me think, okay, so how do we have a multiplier effect on this? And do I guess there are kind of two questions that are related. One is, have you ever considered making range a multi-person 
uh, type of, I mean, like its own little sort of, I don't know if you'd want to call it news outlet. And then the second kind of question is, if that's not the case, do you know of other people in town who are doing similar things that could kind of combine their resources? So I'm just trying to think, I mean, that's pretty powerful, that story you just told. Um, and imagine what would happen if, if there was some sort of multiplier effect. So I, I, is that something that you consider, you have considered or something that you know is happening? Well, I'm glad you asked, Eric. Yeah, no, I mean, it, you know, it started off as like a personal like podcast project. And then the more I started thinking about it, like the, I only did that Google thing because I was like, could this be something more? Because it did seem like it was, it had gotten enough, you know, it, it seemed like it was, it was plugging a, a hole that was in a meaningful enough way that it was like, I, this could be so much more powerful if there were three or four of us doing this work, you know? And that might be a sweet spot for the early going. But it's like, could I... You know, there's. I don't want to really get into the business model of like digital publishing versus versus print, but so many of the costs of like a printed newspaper or, you know, the the infrastructure costs of having a television a television news station, they're so incredibly expensive. Mm-hmm. But I don't know the exact numbers because I never got to see the Inlanders books. But I would have bet the editorial team is probably only like thirty maximum percent of the budget. But with something like a digital format like this, like it could conceivably be like 90% of our budget could be dedicated to editorial. And so all of a sudden, like an editorial team that's supported by like a $6 million a year newspaper, you could kind of support with like a 500, $600, $700,000 operating budget, which would just allow you to sort of focus so much more time and energy on on the work itself and not like having to find advertisers to fill 50% of the, the pages. Um, like the, in, I don't know if this is still true because, because COVID's really hit everybody hard, but the Inlander is one of the most successful all weeklies in America in terms of a lot, in a lot of different metrics, market penetration, all this stuff. I feel amazing that I just happened to live in a town that had an, an all weekly that cool. And I got to write for it for like a decade. And our, our editorial mix, our editorial and ad mix was 50, 50 which is unheard of. Like we had about 50% editorial to 50% ads. It's usually like 30% editorial to 70% ads because that's what it costs. Wow. And so that's digital. Um, the move to digital and people's comfort and actually love for things like podcasts and, and like the direct to consumer route of like, so range is a newsletter. So if you sign up for it at rangemedia.co, um, you it like when we write a story, it just comes in your inbox. And, and whenever a new episode's live, you can get it in your podcast feed or it all, that also comes in your inbox. And so it's just a much more direct way to communicate with people. And so I've been thinking about exactly that, Eric. I've been thinking about like, what if we got a, like a person on staff that could do the outlier media model and like be doing direct journalism for the folks that need it? And there's, there's no end of need here. Like one of the things when I'm talking to service providers and stuff, they're like, one of the biggest hurdles is just how do people find us, right? So like, imagine there was just like a, a number you could text. And I haven't really told anybody about this. So we're, we're breaking news here. And who knows if it'll happen. But it's like, um, the idea is like, you know, I just got evicted. What do I do? Like, what if, I, what if you could just text that to a number and I could send you to Terry Anderson? Or um, I'm worried I, have, uh, I might have COVID and I don't know where to get tested, right? Oh, go here. Uh, or any number of things, you know, like I, I just got out of jail and I need help. I don't have anything on me. Who can I talk to? Right. Like that sort of stuff. 
Um, but then that could then feed again, back to like, what are you focused on? Like all those little stories would start identifying trends and just start identifying individual stories that are really, you know, important and meaningful to then do more traditional reporting on for the rest of the community. Right. There's an, like this, this, this sort of emerging mode of journalism that I've been learning about is like, it's, people are really worried about extractive journalism, right? So it's like, you know, you think about extra, you know, extractive industries, it's like pulling oil out of the ground and leaving the environment worse for it, leaving the town that, uh, oh God. So bringing it back to art briefly, Nomadland, which is a new Francis McDormand movie that just got- oh, wonderful. Uh, One of the best films I've seen in years. It's about a town that was like, sur- like basically surrounded a gypsum mine and the gypsum mine closed and the town went away. Right. That, that is the essence of an extractive economy. Extractive journalism is like, are you, you're reporting about, you know, poor folks or whatever, but are you really reporting for them? Or are you just telling, you know, rich people sob stories about poor folks? <laughs> and so, and that's like, so I'm trying to imagine uh, a model that would sort of invert that and, and turn it on its head. And so like do, do direct work for people and then, and then tell those stories to the larger community that in a way that they might be able to help or take action or, or just be more aware of the, you know, the real, so that it's not just like some politician saying, Oh, all, all homeless people are drug addicts. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's the plan. And if you want to support that plan, you can go to rangemedia.co slash subscribe. Um, but, and, and we're working on some other, so the other, yeah, I wouldn't even get into that. You can have me back on the show in a little while. And I also, I think it also, I think needs to be a worker cooperative. So I'm going to try to turn it into, I'm working with uh, my friend, Joel Williamson and a couple other buddies on uh, who does the grain shed and that's a worker co-op. So making sure that like whoever does work for this company, if, if we get to a place where we're fortunate enough to ever hire somebody, like I'm not a boss and I don't, or I don't own all the equity in the company. So I'm also not at like extracting and exploiting that labor. Cause there, there came a point at, as a young journalist where I felt pretty exploited and I don't want to do that to anybody else ever. So that's the other part of this, like changing the model of journalism, but also a, envisioning a new sort of business model that where there's, you know, you take any, the, even the possibility of, of inequality out of it as much as possible. So. Well, that's actually a good transition because I do want to have you back on sometime soon because I have some questions that I wanted to ask you that I didn't even get to. So <laughs> I, and I talk I, a lot. Uh, no, that's great. That's great. The conversation went where it needed to go. Uh, so yeah, I, I do want to have you back on uh, and we'll talk to you about that. Uh, it was wonderful talking to you. And by the way, just this is kind of a personal note. My wife talks to me about range all the time. She will say, did you see the new thing? And, That's and awesome. she, talked, she talked about um, the action items at the bottom. And she just, she, she said, oh my gosh, that is so cool. So there are people all over town who are really appreciating the work that you're doing. Well, thanks so much, man. Tell, tell, and tell her thank you. I, yeah, I really appreciate I that. Well, good. We'll take you up on that, Luke, uh, as far as coming back. And uh, I, I, like Eric, I have a bunch of questions I'd like to ask, too. And we'll do that another time. But one more time, how can people uh, subscribe for Range or anything else? Um, <laughs> uh, well, Rain, yeah, it's uh, www.rangemedia.co, not com, because com was taken. So, .co. 
Um, and you can, you know, you can sign up for the newsletter there, read all the articles. The other thing I'll say is like, just briefly, cause I know we got to go. Uh, I have started like freelancing with a couple young reporters, one of whom is named Daisy Savala, who's just an absolute badass. She's still a student down at WSU, but she wrote the most beautiful farm story about the, the plight of farm workers during COVID in our area. Like a, a dude who ended up uh, paralyzed after a stroke due to COVID um, that, that actually, I think that made uh, that made waves and that really helped that family get a little bit of help. Um, and, but it also really exposed like, you know, the other, the, the thing that's allowed us all, and I'll speak for myself here, but I'm guessing you too as well. Like, to just like be able to like casually walk down to the grocery store and still like feed ourselves despite a global pandemic, the people on the other end of that supply chain are facing, you know, literally life and death situations every single day to get that food to us. And I think that's another goal is just like trying to ensure that we really understand where all of like all this, the systems and, and processes that are in place that like sort of, that we don't even think about that are mostly invisible to us. So her and and she's a she's i i believe she she thinks of herself as a chicana and she's from walla walla so she's a uh and i talked to mike i talked to your wife christy about this like she's a, she's a fluent spanish speaker and that was another thing that was important about non-extractive journalism it was uh like making sure we could speak to these farm workers in their native language and in the the people doing uh, work on their behalf like making them comfortable enough to tell their story. And one of the ways that we did that was, or we tried to do that. And that's something I could not have done. So I could not have done this without Daisy was tell that story, you know, in, interview that person in Spanish. So that's what we're working on. Uh, rangemedia.co slash, or you can just, yeah. So go read it rangemedia.co co. And then you can subscribe at rangemedia.co slash subscribe. Awesome. Luke, thanks again. Thanks so much, guys. On later. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, thank you guys so much. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. That was fun. It was a wonderful conversation. I look forward to talking again. All right. See you guys. All right, Eric, awesome. right, see you, Luke. Way and we'll Bye. see you guys later. Yeah. Thank you, Eric. Thank your wife for me and Mike. Say hi to Christopher. Well, I will. All right. See you guys. Bye, guys. Bye.